Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's episode, we talk to Raphael Lefebvre about his new book, Jihad in the City, Militant Islam and Contentious Politics in AAA. We'll also talk to Sarah Parkinson about her article, Discourtesy Bias, and Mohammed Dadawi about Morocco's election and the rise and fall of the PJD. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined on this week's book segment by Raphael Lefebvre of the University of Oxford. And he's the author of the new Cambridge University Press book, Jihad in the City, Militant Islam and Contentious Politics in Tripoli. Uh, Raphael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So this book is quite an accomplishment. Can you tell us a little bit about it and um, what you were trying to accomplish with it? Um, this book really came out of my interest for Lebanese politics and especially for the politics and history of the city of Tripoli, uh, Lebanon's second city. And it all came together in 2013, 2014. I was living in Beirut. I was doing research on Lebanese politics. And I came to the realization that quite a bit of the scholarship on Lebanese politics, on the Lebanese civil war as well, uh, was Beirut-centric. And uh, so that meant a lot of the uh, local dynamics and politics and histories in, in other areas outside of the capital, in, in cities like Saida, Baalbek, but also in other areas were not covered. Mm-hmm. And to me, uh, the big paradox was the fact that Tripoli, the city of Tripoli, was not covered uh, extensively at all in that scholarship, uh, which was a paradox because beyond being just Lebanon's second city. Uh, Tripoli is also a strategic hub, a city of 500,000 people, a port, uh, a city with a rich local history. And so I decided to uh, go and move there and start doing research on the history and politics of Tripoli. Um, And that's really when uh, uh, I became interested in a particular episode of Tripolitan history, which has become the core of the book, uh, which is really the the story of the rise and fall of militant Islamist group uh, called Tawhid back in 1980s during the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, This was quite an interesting movement uh, because it implemented what some observers have called in retrospect the first ISIS-style Islamic Emirate, as in implementing Islamic law at gunpoint, segregating schools, uh, banning the sale of alcohol, Um, uh, fighting religious minorities and so on and so forth. And and so because it was not only not really tackled in the scholarship on the Lebanese civil war, but because it also had a sense of broader resonance, uh, this is really what what the book became about, telling that story. So tell us a little bit about Tawhid, because this is not a a well-known movement, even among people who study Islamist movements. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's not a very well-known movement. Um, It's difficult to sum Tawhid up, uh, except then to say that it had at least two sides to it. Uh, On the one hand, this was a militant Islamist group uh, which drew inspiration from uh, the radical fringes of the Muslim Brotherhood and especially ideologues like Said Qutb. Uh, It was a group, as I said, that implemented a a small Islamic emirate for, for three years in Tripoli back in the 80s, Um, a group that also got involved in quite a bit of violence during these three years during which it controlled the city. Uh, It fought fought local leftist militants, it fought uh, religious minorities, the Lebanese army, the Syrian army. 
Uh, and so this was clearly on one hand, uh, a radical a militant Islamist movement. Uh, but on the other hand, what I found really fascinating about the movement and as I started doing uh, research into it that became clearer and clearer, uh, this movement had so many contradictions. So for instance, it was espousing a, a sort of transnational a global Islamist rhetoric uh, advocating for the recreation of the Islamic Caliphate, uh, um, um, advocating for uh, attacks to be launched on, on American soil. And on the other hand, it was really just a movement tied to Tripoli. It remained always Tripolitan, never spread outside of the city, which is why very few uh, outsiders know about it. Uh, another contradiction I found interesting was that, although, as I said, uh, this was a clear cut militant Islamist group, uh, and it did include uh, some radical clerics and Islamist ideologues. Uh, this movement was also quite heterogeneous. It was also quite diverse, but that only became clear as I did more and more research. It included profit-driven gangsters. It included uh, neighborhood strongmen and their followers who had scores to settle and Tripolitan rebels of all kinds. And, and the book really is about trying to make sense of these contradictions, of these shades of grays, of these uh, uh, nuances and sometimes uh, uh, tensions uh, within the movement. So when you study this, one of the things which really jumps out uh, when you read the book is how you work so much at the local level, like really digging in and disaggregating the movement. So let's talk a little bit about that and what the value is of this kind of very, very close reading of what's happening at the local level. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think we can read the micro, you know, the micro level in, in two sort of ways. Uh, on the one hand, you mentioned the role of neighborhoods, the role of the city, and the ways in which uh, the movement inserted itself in local space. It became very strong, by the way, not just in Tripoli, because that would be inaccurate, but it was because it was absent from some neighborhoods and very, very strong in other neighborhoods. And I think that looking at the ways in which these uh, Islamist movements um, which we sometimes assume are uprooted, in fact, get embedded in local communities mm -hmm. really has a lot of uh, uh, value. Um, but, but there is another way of looking at the micro level. And I think you also hinted at that. Uh, it's also about looking at an organization and the ways in which it operates from within. Um, and part of the value of uh, doing a lot of interviews with members, former members, and, and you know their enemies as well, is that I was able to get to the bottom at, of how internal dynamics in these Islamist movements that are always assumed to be driven by ideology and kind of that's it, um, are extremely rich and sometimes very contentious. Well, let's talk about the role of ideology then, because I think that's the other thing which comes through very clearly is that there's a very interesting way in which you see ideology mattering for these movements. Well, so the debate on the role of ideology in, in militant Islamist movements is has been uh, kind of since the 1980s, but especially you know ever since the rise of ISIS, really framed in these binary ways. Uh, Islamist militant movements are either assumed to be ideologically driven uh, or, or to be essentially pragmatic actors, uh, uh, most of the time instrumentalizing an ideology. And I'm trying to 
point to the fact that more often than not, a lot of these groups are deeply heterogeneous. They feature what I call a wide spectrum of ideological commitment. Some of their members, some of their factions will be ideologically driven, some of them extremely so, and it's worth highlighting the agency here of uh, sometimes just a handful of, say, cadres uh, uh, on, on movement behavior. Uh, but these groups also include a lot of members or leaders uh, for that matter uh, who are in for other reasons. And I think it's useful to think about these groups as heterogeneous movements because it points to the uh, rich internal interactions again, uh, the relationship between factions driven uh, by different motivations and different levels of ideological commitment. To continue then, like linking these together, um, you go from the highly local level, like the specific neighborhoods and almost uh, gang wars within uh, very specific locations, all the way up to the great geopolitics of the day with Iran and Syria and the PLO. So tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about the local to global types of connections. Yeah, it's not always a clear cut uh, uh, between the local, the national, and, and the global. I, in, in the book, I do try to highlight the importance of factoring in the role of the local context in when we study militant Islamist groups, but you're absolutely right to point out that uh, Tawhid was impacted uh, uh, to a large extent by transnational dynamics. So um, it forged, for instance, a, a strong alliance at first, at least with, with the PLO. Uh, and then when the PLO, uh, which was very strong in two refugee camps just outside of Tripoli, was defeated by the Syrian army in late 1983, uh, Tawhid changed its foreign alliances and started aligning with Iran. At first, there was an ideological dimension to this uh, a relationship with Iran, uh, because in Tawhid, this relationship was handled by the ideologues uh, who, who really wanted uh, Tawhid to sort of create an Islamic Republic in, in Lebanon and in Tripoli, uh, uh, but, but, but they were eliminated at some point, and the relationship between Tawhid and Iran then became much more transna tra transactional. And that just shows the extent to which um, we sometimes tend to think of Islamist groups like say uh, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan or, or Hamas and Hezbollah as being uh, essentially proxies for East, either Pakistani intelligence or, or Iranian uh, intelligence. Uh, and, and there is an element to which these transnational actors, these states or these uh, transnational non-state actors are able to influence uh, uh, the politics of the local armed groups that they sponsor. But at the same time, it's also interesting to be looking at the variation in the relationships uh, that it can start off as being a very ideological relationship and then turn more pragmatic. Um, but also looking at the ways in which these foreign ties, these foreign relationships are sometimes instrumentalized at the local level. So at some point it became clear that uh, in the relationship between Tawhid and Iran, um, the movement and especially the leaders were instrumentalizing that relationship um, essentially to get the uh, diplomatic support of Iran uh, uh, because they were uh, themselves Tawhid leaders uh, facing a, a war with Syria and they were hoping to secure uh, the mediation of, of Tehran. So quite a lot of 
uh, interesting dynamics going on between the local and the transnational. It's not always as clear cut as we think, uh, but more often than not, in the case of Tawhid, uh, um, these transnational ties were really instrumentalized at the local level. And the ideological dynamics were not always very clear cut here. So we've been speaking um, in fairly abstract terms, but the book is extremely rich in, uh, in kind of the historical detail that it uncovers. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the different strands which came together in the creation of Tawhid uh, and kind of how it evolved into what it became? Yeah, so the movement was created in 1982 as a, as a gathering of, of essentially uh, Tripoli's uh, committed Islamist factions. Uh, which were all uh, uh, ready to uh, unite and merge as they were facing uh, the threat of a Syrian crackdown. Remember that's 1982, uh, Tripoli is very close to Syria, especially to the cities of Homs and Hama. And uh, the Syrian regime had just months earlier um, carried out a crackdown on the Islamist opposition in Syria, especially centering on the city of Hama. Uh, so uh, the Tripoli's Islamists got together and, and started uh, uh, fighting off the Syrian, uh, the Syrian army, which back then was also occupying large parts of Northern Lebanon. Um, and um, as the movement uh, grew and started taking control of the city, it needed manpower, it needed fighters, more fighters than just uh, the relatively small pool in the end of, of Tripoli's committed Islamists. And so it started recruiting uh, in several less ideologically driven constituencies at the local level, at the local level, it started really trying to root itself in the social fabric of Tripoli. And that's really when it started to recruit, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, what I call neighborhood Islamists, who were essentially uh, um, uh, um, members uh, of uh, uh, organizations in the neighborhood uh, called Babete Bene, uh, which uh, needed uh, uh, protection uh, from Tawhid and so the integrating the integrated Tawhid uh, for their own local purposes because they were embroiled in a neighborhood feud with a rival uh, uh, district uh, but but ideology never really drove them um, and um, Tawhid also recruited from other constituencies in Tripoli uh, some of them were uh, those I call the subaltern Islamists who again uh, were not really Islamists per se they were uh, uh, impoverished uh, inhabitants of the slums of Tripoli who saw, who shared really uh, Tawhid's will to overthrow uh, the local social order. Um, and, and Tawhid even went to the extent of recruiting local gangsters who also saw an opportunity here uh, in joining the movement uh, to uh, continue engaging in smuggling. Um, so as the group started really controlling Tripoli, um, the, the movement really became bigger and bigger, uh, started comprising two to 3,000 fighters and members. And, and that's really when its spectrum of ideological commitment uh, became really stretched. Um, interestingly enough, like even though attracting constituencies that were less ideologically driven brought Tawhid quite a few members and fighters and, and constituencies and allowed the movement to root itself locally and so to be able to control the city, to root itself in neighborhoods, eventually it, it signaled its own demise because internal struggles started happening uh, uh, and, and uh, yeah, the city became also much more divided uh, uh, and then the Syrian army intervened uh, and uh, defeated Tawhid precisely at that point. 
Now, it's interesting, the, um, the relationship, uh, that, as you're starting to talk about here, between ideology and um, other kinds of motivations and the complex mix that goes on there. Because you do mention, like, there are real ideological entrepreneurs, people who are genuinely seem to be motivated by uh, religious commitment or by Islamist ideas. And then you have others who it seems much more a matter of convenience. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit in terms of those conflicting um, motivations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, here, I think uh, an interesting uh, addition to, to the two points you made is, is to point out that uh, the leaders uh, of Tawhid themselves, uh, very few were, were ready to, um, to, to, to draw Tawhid in a, a purely ideologically driven direction. Uh, they were often, more often than not, driven by the goal of organizational maintenance. They wanted Tawhid to survive. Uh, they didn't want to draw Tawhid into ideological struggles that the movement was not uh, equipped to win. Uh, so uh, you're absolutely right to point out that the, the role of the ideological entrepreneurs here was key. These were uh, uh, actually a minority of members who were extremely ideologically driven. They were not leaders. They were not also rank and file just members. They were often cadres. They were members of um, the education office of Tawhid. So they were essentially responsible for the indoctrination activities of the movement. They were those running the movement's newspaper, the movement TV station, radio station. They were those often giving speeches in, 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 in city squares. Uh, and uh, as uh, they fulfilled all of these important functions and they became influential over time uh, on the movement, they used that influence to kind of try to steer the movement in a more Islamist direction. So they were able to, for instance, uh, lobby the leaders into cracking down on uh, Tripoli's local leftists. Uh, they were uh, key in, in, in Tawhid uh, implementing Islamic law at gunpoint in Tripoli. Uh, they were also key in uh, uh, something else, which actually is part of the, of the legacy of Tawhid today. Uh, they pressured the leaders into erecting in the uh, city's main roundabout uh, a name bearing Allah's sign, uh, Allah's name, uh, a massive sign met in metal, uh, which still dominates the city until today. Uh, yeah, the, the cover of the book is a very striking uh, image. Yeah, exactly. It's on the cover of the book. Um, I mean, they were, so they were very successful in steering the movement in this sort of like Islamist direction. At the same time, they were not always successful and there was quite a bit of pushback. And it's really these internal interactions that, I'm, that, that the book is also exploring. And it goes even farther uh, in, I think, a very interesting way of showing exactly why Islamism was useful for some of these leaders. And it couldn't have just been any ideology, but this one seemed to fill a particular space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a time back in the early 1980s as well, when uh, uh, progressively uh, Islamism became the sort of new protest ideology. Uh, it used to be Marxism and before that, pan-Arabism that were the quintessential uh, rebel ideologies of, of a lot of the people who had grievances to express. Uh, but after the, the 1979 Iranian revolution and, and also after the events of, of Hama, again, like I cannot but uh, highlight the extent to which uh, the events of, that happened in Syria back then were, were extremely important. We sometimes tend to forget uh, this 
Islamist struggle against the Syrian regime back in the late 70s and 1980s, and especially the role of one jihadi group in particular called the Fighting Vanguard, uh, whose insurgency really for three years back in 1979-1982 really shook the foundations of the Syrian regime, had tremendous uh, impact uh, outside of Syria as well. And it, it really uh, um, uh, empowered um, Islamist groups uh, in Tripoli, that's for sure, but also signaled to a lot of uh, rebels, necessarily, not necessarily with specific ideology, that Islamism could play that role of mobilizing people and, and potentially overthrowing regimes. And then meanwhile, um, in, in, in another world, perhaps the Lebanese branch of the Muslim Brotherhood might have been able to fill that gap, but you have a pretty good explanation for why they couldn't. Yeah, the Lebanese branch of the Muslim Brotherhood is historically quite strong in Tripoli. So it's interesting that Tawhid completely overshadowed the group uh, back then. Um, and, and the main reason for why that is the case is because the Muslim Brotherhood of Lebanon, but it's also the case elsewhere as well, of course, mainly plays the role of, of playing, playing, plays the game of institutionalized politics. Uh, they're quite reluctant to engage in armed struggle. And that was the period of the Lebanese civil war. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Lebanese Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which was strong in Tripoli, was very reluctant to, uh, it had a militia, a very small militia, but it did not really get dragged into, into the battles. It really set its sights on making alliances with whomever it could and, and, and playing the long game, uh, remaining alive. Also being aware that with the Syrian army occupying uh, uh, Lebanon back then, far, large parts of Lebanon, uh, and having just crushed the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, it couldn't really afford uh, a confrontation. So it led that role to, to Tawhid, and, and Tawhid fulfilled that role very well, which brought a lot of uh, uh, Tripolitans who had issues with the Syrian regime to its ranks. But of course, eventually, uh, that also uh, led to its own demise because the Syrian army ended up cracking very brutally uh, on Tawhid. Let's go back up to uh, kind of a, a more general, a broader level. Um, so you've done this, this work of uh, historical recovery, bringing the experience of Tawhid uh, in Tripoli back into, the, into our view. And so what do you think that does for our thinking about Islamist movements, about contentious politics, social movements? You know, what do you see as the broad significance of this type of you know, hyper-local, disaggregated type of research, you know, what, what does it mean for the rest of us? Um, yeah, I mean, I, as you mentioned, I, I tried to engage with, uh, as a political scientist, with, with broader debates, and, and, and it was quite, quite, you know, tricky in a way to make uh, my local case-specific research speak to broader debates, but, but, but I felt like there were two areas in particular where uh, Tawhid's case could be uh, useful uh, for others. Um, and that was, first of all, when it came to the role of, of ideology in, in Islamist movements, but also more broadly in ideologically driven armed groups and social movements, uh, trying to think about these groups as, as heterogeneous actors with a wide spectrum of ideological commitments. So trying to disaggregate uh, ideology at the organizational level and looking at these internal interactions, which I think are very interesting and important. And, and in many ways overlooked, you mentioned earlier, uh, the role of the ideological entrepreneurs I think we, we, we need more work on the role of the agency of, of sometimes just a handful of actors in some of these movements. 
uh, uh, rather than generalizing on whether uh, these groups are ideologically driven or are rather uh, pragmatic actors. And the second point I'm trying to make that, that again relates to, to broader debates and social movements and armed groups and Islamist politics is, is really the role of, of local context. Uh, it strikes me that, that we've often talked about uh, the role of the national context or political opportunity structures uh, and so on and so forth. The role also of transnational dynamics aligned with external actors. Um, but in Perhit's case, although these two uh, levels of analysis mattered, uh, the local level really mattered a lot. So the ways in which the movement uh, tried to uh, become Tripolitan, to uh, uh, become very strongly rooted in some neighborhoods and, and used that, but then was also impacted by that, is I think something that, that can speak to broader debates and, and again to uh, perhaps the need to factor in uh, the role of local dynamics, the role of local identities, the role of local solidarities in how these movements uh, uh, operate, recruit and mobilize. I did get a very strong sense of almost a, a status calivist type of approach, um, which is unusual in terms of studying uh, Islamist movements. Uh, I mean, Statis Calivas has been a, a huge uh, influence on, on my thinking, and so that's, that's in a way, uh, uh, one of my main intellectual uh, influences. But you're right, I mean, looking at the micro level and trying to, to generate broader insights uh, from it, whether it's the, the Greek Civil War or whether it's uh, uh, Tripolitan politics during the Lebanese Civil War of the 1980s, uh, I think this is something also as area studies scholars who have deep local knowledge and uh, go on the ground and have the opportunity to, to do interviews and archival research that, that is often quite deep. Uh, we have an opportunity here, I think, to, to try to engage with some of these broader debates uh, uh, because these granular de details uh, are gonna be really useful when it comes to generating more, more theoretical insights. So now that uh, the, the the book is published and I think you've done what you can do with uh, with Tawhid and Tripoli, um, where do you want to try and take this research now? Uh, so this is my my second book. Um, I, before writing uh, Jihad in the City, uh, I wrote Ashes of Hama, which was sure, again yeah. centered on 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 one movement, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, arguably two movements with the fighting vanguard. Uh, looking mainly at the 1980s again, and, and mainly in the cities of Hama and, and Aleppo, uh, without being able to do a ground research there, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but so I've, I've written these two books on, on sort of local dynamics and, and you know, uh, specific organizations. And uh, part of me uh, really likes that a lot, finds it incredibly stimulating, and I'm always learning a lot from, from this sort of, of local research. But another part of me is now tempted to kind of broaden up. Uh, I'm part of this uh, uh, research project headed by Morton Valbjorn of Aros University and Jeroen Gunning of King's College London. And we're looking at uh, uh, the other Islamists, so Shia Islamist groups armed groups in, in the case that, that I'm interested in, uh, uh, more broadly speaking, and trying to bring in these other actors that have been often marginalized uh, in, in the scholarship at a more macro level, you know, like without focusing on one organization uh, specifically, is something that, that I'm interested in increasingly. Well, you know, it was a fascinating subplot uh, in the book, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it's worth maybe going back to in that context, of how Iran tried to turn Tawhid, as you put it, into a Sunni Hezbollah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, so the Hezbollah's relation with, with Iran, as you know, was from the very, very beginning, very, very strong. Uh, and, and in many ways, Hezbollah uh, uh, um, carried out uh, Iranian foreign policy in Lebanon during the time of the Lebanese civil war by carrying out uh, bombings on the US and French embassies and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the Iranian intelligence in particular, which were developing relationships with uh, Tawhid were interested in turning Tawhid, this Sunni Islamist movement, intrably into this other Hezbollah, into a Sunni Hezbollah that would essentially do Hezbollah's job, but in the north of Lebanon. Uh, and, and for a while, there was a sense that this could be possible. Uh, Tawhid started carrying out uh, attacks on, on, on French and American interests in northern Lebanon. Uh, but it soon transpired that the movement really was using these, these transnational ties to Iran for its own local interest. And again, here I'm pointing to the role of the ideological entrepreneurs because they were the ones who were personally invested in uh, um, dealing with the relationship with Iran. Iran essentially was not dealing with Tawhid, but with these guys. And, um, and they were killed. And from the time they were killed onwards, the relationship between Iran and Tawhid turned much more pragmatic, much more transactional. And, and Tawhid never ended up uh, uh, taking the role that Hezbollah plays uh, when it comes to, to uh, Iran. Well, we've been speaking to Raphael Lefebvre about his uh, new book, Jihad in the City, Militant Islam and Contentious Politics in Tripoli. Just a really rich and fascinating book. Uh, Raphael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and in this segment, we're joined by Sarah Parkinson at Johns Hopkins University and the author of a new article, Discourtesy Bias, Methodological Cognates, Data Validity and Ethics and Violence Adjacent Research. Just came out in Comparative Political Studies. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So we've been talking about things related to this article for a long time, um, and it's great to see that it's finally out. Tell us about it and like what the major contribution of this article is going to be. Sure. So the idea behind this article was seriously thinking through um, basically what it means to do research in crisis zones and what scholars are getting out of it, and actually by extension, what even journalists and members of the humanitarian response community might be getting out of all these different ways that basically they ask questions and look for information about crisis affected populations. So the article is built around my own field work in both Lebanon and Iraq. I've been going back and forth to the region for over a decade at this point, and particularly engagement with uh, displaced uh, people. So Syrian and Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and with displaced people in Iraq. And what I basically found is that in settings where, say, war, forced migration, humanitarian crisis, natural disaster have attracted a lot of international attention, so the Syrian refugee crisis is a great example of this, people who academics approach as research participants, prior experiences with journalists, with advocacy groups, with state security, with humanitarian organizations, even with missionaries, is going to shape the way that they respond to a scholar who is asking questions. And that's because people often see that scholar as part of that larger community of people who ask questions and who use what I refer to as methodological cognates, 
which are basically tools that are used to gather information like surveys or in-depth interviews. And the article goes through and identifies four ways in which the use of methodological cognates in these kinds of contexts shapes data, and those shapes data, and that is through regurgitation, reluctant participation, redirection, and resistance. We can get into each of those a little bit if you like. One of the things which is really striking about the article is that you don't just observe that there's this effect, but you actually point out the fact that this really shapes the data that we're using in ways that people might, you know, they might acknowledge that these things are happening, but then they just go on and use the data anyway. Right. And that's kind of the issue where they're saying like, oh yeah, this person didn't want to answer this and told me why. And I just used the data from the entire study anyway. Mm -hmm. Or I acknowledge that there are all these political dynamics that are shaping the space in which I'm operating, but here are a few cool technical tricks that I use and that's going to take care of it. And in a lot of ways that neither addresses the very context dependent ways in which these dynamics play out. I make the point in the piece that that all of these things from regurgitation to resistance might take a different form from place to place, but is also going to depend on the researcher, on what kinds mm -hmm. of other uh, organizations are operating. Is this a heavily securitized space? Is this a protracted refugee displacement, as is the case with Palestinian refugees in Lebanon? Um, and then start to look at the fact that like a lot of this can't be overcome with sort of neat technical tricks. You actually have to think about reciting a project. The article isn't about, isn't geared towards saying don't do research. I think that might actually apply for some spaces, but it's about do better research, do more creative research that actually recognizes in full that you are in a social, economic and political context um, that is shaping your own presence as well as your participants' lives. As I was reading it, um, I, I, it really struck me, uh, it reminded me of the late and truly great uh, Leanne Fuji's work. Um, and uh, a, lot of these, a lot of these lessons uh, should be out there, I think a bit more widely within our field. And yet in many ways, they're too difficult to grapple with. So I think that I, I, I had a very close relationship with Leanne Fuji and I think that comes through in, in the work quite strongly and my respect for the for her just the foundation that she and people like Elizabeth Jean Wood have laid out in this field um, have given a lot of us the opportunity to try to build out this relationship between ethics and methods. So I think that there is a growing conversation in political science um, that in many ways has had to catch up to anthropology, to the medical sciences, to sociology. Um, but that one of the things that we have to be looking at in political science is saying like, look, ethics are about our moral decisions as researchers and about our social contributions as researchers. But ethics also are a necessary precursor to gathering good data. So when we're talking about sort of the methodological revolution in political science, well, here's the thing, your methods in a vacuum might be able to theoretically do one thing, but when you bring them out into what I would think of as often the gloriously complex social world, they're just not going to operate the same way. And one of the most fascinating and I think fun aspects of doing social science research 
is accepting that you're never in a controlled environment right and thinking about the ways to make you know ideal methods operate in the real world is one of the most sort of interesting intellectual challenges of what we do but the whole point here is that you can't and, and what i think that people like uh Elizabeth Jean Wood and Leanne Fuji brought to the fore is that you can't do this work well, particularly in crisis zones, but also in all kinds of other spaces, if you don't have that ethical foundation, because your methods just aren't going to operate the way that you want them to. It's such an important point. So let's talk about the, um, the specific mechanisms that, um, that you identify in this article. Sure. Um, so for example, what do you mean by regurgitation? So regurgitation is um, one of the ways you could think about it if you're coming from an American context, for example, is when we used to get calls from like political pollsters on the telephone at like seven o'clock at night in the middle of dinner, and you give these sort of rote answers. So the example that I use in the article is I'm going, I was in, working alongside um, uh, a health-oriented uh, health uh, international non-governmental organization in Iraq. And this was in a displaced persons camp in the context of the Mosul operation. And they would go from tent to tent and ask people, of course, the same questions about their health in every tent. And people have been asked, in this case, I was with, um, I believe this was the first, these are called humanitarian assessments that these people had experienced. But over time, when you live in a space or you're staying in a space like a displaced persons camp, you're going to get these several times a week at first. You might get follow-ups every month. It's really going to depend on whether or not you have a big NGO and humanitarian presence, whether you have a government response. But basically, these sorts of surveys is what they are, uh, are to assess needs. But when you have people coming through every day and you're really not doing anything else, this gets exhausting. And people are asking personal questions about your health, about members of your family, about, you know, well, are there members of your family who aren't here? Have you been exposed to certain things? Um, and it's like, well, I was just in a, I was just in the midst of the Mosul operation. My house might have just been shelled. We've just walked, you know, dozens of kilometers from Mosul in 120 degree heat, like, yeah, there's quite a lot wrong right now. But then there might also be, especially with a middle income population, which many Iraqis are, and which a lot of humanitarian actors sort of had trouble grappling with, given other spaces they've been in, you know, they're asking like, oh, do you know how to wash your hands properly? And people are like, yes, we know how to wash our hands properly. So you see these sorts of interactions between like, well, how much food do you need? And do you understand how to wash your hands? Which sounds incredibly patronizing when you're coming out of, you know, a middle income situation where you had to make life and death decisions in, in 2014 and, you know, are, are now facing the consequences of them, right? Okay, well, what about redirection? Redirection. This is one that I that fascinates me and has for quite a long time. I've been interested in in healthcare access in situations of crisis and displacement, and did some of this work with um, in in Lebanon with the Syrian refugee crisis. But this is when an encounter begins, and it might be something that we think of as an academic interview. 
for a clinical visit and someone takes the opportunity of that interaction, whether or not it's because of the structure of the interaction, like a one-on-one -on -one conversation like we're having now, or who is a member of that interaction. So someone who is not a member of their community or immediate family, for example. And while the interaction is called one thing, the participant then turns it into something different. So I was interviewing clinical providers, so doctors, psychosocial workers, these kinds of people who would say that people who had nothing medically wrong with them would make an appointment, show up for it, and then stay three times as long as they were supposed to just talking, right? And in some settings, this is people either don't know or don't ha have, have access to psychological services. And this is something that is, you know, a huge issue across humanitarian responses, for example. Um, but they would basically use a doctor's visit because there is doctor-patient confidentiality, um, because this is someone often from outside a community, and because it's private and they can also sort of hide what they're doing from their family. Like they're not going to the therapist, they're going to the doctor. Um, and they would sit there and just sort of talk about the stresses of their lives. Um, this happens, and I am not the first person to say that this also happens in mm -hmm. academic interactions. Um, you know, this is something that people have long recognized. There uh, is a co-authored article by Chloe Lewis, Jana Kraus mentions things like this in her work, um, where you see that people are interested in doing an academic interview, but then they actually wind up turning it into like, well, I need monetary help. I wanna talk about, you know, how I'm feeling. And these are often conversations that academics are not equipped to have, right? And that get it, we're getting into them can actually do psychological harm. So if we think about what I just said, where there aren't great psychological services in a lot of crisis zones, whether we're talking about natural disaster or conflict or displacement, whatever, um, there just aren't, there might not be a strong tradition of um, mental health treatment. I mean, we still face massive stigma about mental health in the mm -hmm. US. So sort of opening up these conversations might disrupt people's coping mechanisms basically and leave them in a more vulnerable position than previously because this sort of one-shot conversation a is not with someone who is trained to do therapy and b can't have proper follow-up so this is actually a space where harm might be done um, and I think that more people so and you sort of see and there's a fine line where some people feel a lot of relief talking about for example their political history with the researcher that's fine. And that's distinct, both feeling relief or feeling a sense of agency in telling a story um, or feeling emotions is very different from re-traumatization. So it's important here to not assume that people are traumatized, but it's also important as a scholar to recognize that this is an interaction that someone is um, redirecting in a way that is problematic for both the researcher and for the participant. We've got just a couple minutes left. Now, what about reluctance and resistance? Reluctance, I think, is one that people uh, are most familiar with. And that is one of these, like, we've been talking about this at conferences for a long time, but haven't figured out how to talk about it in the data. Reluctant participation is people are tired, right? So I cite an article in the piece that's like Eritrean refugee youth are tired of being asked questions. This was, you know, constantly present in, in my work in Lebanon. And one of the reasons I decided not to focus on specific sites because people were just exhausted and mm -hmm. youth in particular, I think have taken 
um, the vanguard of saying like, no, like stay the hell out of our community. Like enough researchers aren't bringing anything back to the community. They're often representing us in extremely problematic ways. Um, people go and make their careers and don't come back. Um, so you can sort of see where their reluctance comes from there, right? And that can obviously like really mess with data, which gets us to resistance, right. which is I define as deliberate interference with researchers' data with the goal of stopping, slowing, or harming the project itself. Um, I actually cite an email to someone who I would consider a colleague where who asked me about involving people I knew from the camps in Lebanon in a research project uh, of theirs. And I asked, you know, my friends, my contacts, what they thought of this and got back just, and it was a matter of the framing of the project and how it was being done and where it was being done. Um, what I think is fair to call and what needs to be called hostile responses. And this was because, you know, versions of this project have been done by both by academics, by aid agencies, by various governments, all of this. And the framing wasn't something that resonated locally. Um, and I'd seen this happen in uh, other cases in the same communities in Lebanon where people were like, you know, fine, you wanna come ask us stupid questions. We're gonna give you fake answers. Like we're college educated. We understand how surveys work. So now we're gonna mess with your data and you're gonna have crap data. Um, but one of the things I bring up with all of these is that if researchers don't know these contexts, if they're unable to identify these patterns, they're still going out and using that data. Like, the other example I use of um, resistance is a study that um, you know public health researchers approached a leader in one of the refugee camps where I was living and said like, hey, like I wanna do this totally apolitical study of how bad your water is. Like if you live in this camp, you know the water's bad. Like you can't drink the water. You have to buy drinking water. You know, if you wash your pots in the water for long enough, like they'll split, for example. So like no one, <laughs> No one thinks the water is great drinking water. And this researcher comes in and is like, Sue, I think your water might be bad. And like giving you skin rashes. And you're like, duh. Um, and the guy basically told him like, it, it, but the whole like, but this is my apolitical public health project. And basically the camp leader was like, if you are too stupid to realize that water is political, then you are too stupid to be a public health researcher. Um, and denied him permission to do denied this researcher the permission to do the study. I think the study was still done. I'm not sure how, but the bottom line is like, it, yeah. A, it didn't have permission, but B, it was something totally obvious where they were denying the fundamental context of why the water remained bad for so long, which was because of this political jockeying. Um, but I think the big issue here is, are people in a position to identify when these dynamics are playing out? Um, and can we sort of, uh, do can we set up research better in advance so that uh, projects aren't constantly encountering these dynamics, whether or not scholars know that they're present? Well, this is just really important and really interesting, and uh, it's uh, great to talk to you about it. We've been talking to Sarah Parkinson and Johns Hopkins. Uh, thanks for joining the program. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Mohammed Dabawi of Oklahoma City University, author of Moroccan Monarchy in the Islamist Challenge. Uh, Mohammed, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me. So there was the election last month in Morocco, and tell us a little bit about what happened and why it's significant. 
Well, last month on September 8, uh, Morocco had its legislative elections, and uh, these are elections that have been regular right now for, for the period of the post-independence in Morocco. This is the third election since the Arab uprisings. We had elections in 2011, 2016, and then, of course, last, uh, last month. And what's important about this election is that it is the first post-Arab uprising elections in which the Islamist party of the Party of uh, Justice and Development, PGD, has not won. And um, in a sense, I mean, had been dealt a resounding defeat in terms of the tally of the votes and the seats that they uh, managed to uh, procure in the parliament, in the lower house of the parliament in Morocco. Um, in 2011-2016, the PGD have actually accumulated more victories, uh, more gains. But since 2016, the party has been on a downward trajectory. So you could see that this is coming. But I don't think even the best of analysts in North African politics and Moroccan politics probably predicted how bad they did. I mean, 13 seats, right, of 390. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a lot. And it's a decline of about 90% of the seats that they managed to win in 2016, which begs a lot of questions, of course. What happened to the BJD? since 2016 and a lot of it of course i mean they had tremendous uh uh of course within the party itself there was a change at the head of the party from the populist i think the much more popular leader of the party uh ben kiran and the former head uh, of the government in 2016 who was unable to form the government after they won nominally of course the the uh, plurality of the seats in the in the parliament and then, of course, they had this newer uh, president of the party, leader of the party, and president of the government, prime minister, but I guess the constitution in Morocco called him the president of the, of the government, and things have not gone uh, their way. Now, it's not as simplistic as that. Of course, there's tre tremendous uh, regime, state management of the political party scene, uh, tremendous recycling of party coalitions throughout the years, and of course, uh, a great deal of electoral engineering. Uh, as just right before the elections, the government introduced, the Ministry of Interior introduced reforms, electoral reforms as they call them, uh, what is called the coefficient, the electoral coefficient by which the votes would be actually decided based on the number of registered voters, not actually the votes cast, right? which is meant to dilute the number of votes that any uh, major parties, in this case, the PGD, would, would, would obtain in the elections. Um, but, I, but I don't know. I think a lot of us are still puzzled on how poorly the PJD did, I mean, given all of these constraints as well. So well, let's, I let's think go back, that, let's go back go to ahead. the beginning. Let's go back to 2011 and yes. the PJD's decision to enter the elections. And where do they fit into the broader spectrum of Islamist politics? And politics more generally um, mm -hmm. after when the uprisings led to these elections. Mm -hmm. Well, the PJD is a uh, the party of justice and development. is is It's going to be a more of a progress, progressive, moderate Islamist party. They not uh, they have to be distinguished from the other uh, uh, party or association group that is banned. It's called Al Adl Wal Ihsan, mm -hmm. justice and charity. That one is still not allowed to take part. And they themselves, you know, they had a lot of conversations after the death of their spiritual leader uh, Salam Yassin about whether they join the political system or not. And for the time being, they have decided to reject everything wholesale. So I call them as the rejectionist Islamist versus the accommodationist Islamist in a sense. Accommodations would be to PJD. PJD have always had this track, and this is not the first time in 2000, it wasn't in 2011, the first time. The first time they did actually 1997 elections, which was towards the end of the um, reign of the late King Hassan II, 
who invited much what his son would do in 2011, invited the opposition to take over the government in a sense, and that was the Socialist Party of USP. And um, the, the, the Justice Development decided to enter into the political fray. When I had my conversation, even I asked a uh, conversation with uh, Ben Kiran, who was the prime minister uh, for, from 2011-2016 and was the leader of the party of the PJD at one point. And I did ask this question, why join? Why not just reject like the Adil Wal Ihsan? And he said that, you know, what we know about that track of rejectionism, and it's not very constructive to the country, right? And he said that the most important thing to do is trying to work on reforms from within the system. So the idea that Islamists believe that they could genuinely affect the, 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 the trajectory of what they believe are reforms, socioeconomic reforms within the government, uh, within the country, uh, from playing a part within the government. And I think they were very uh, encouraged as well and very confident because the, 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 out of the, all the parties, they have a very sizable uh, uh, power when it comes to mobilization. Mobilization capabilities are great. I think they are probably one of the best parties prior to, to last month, I would say. Uh, to uh, have uh, the ability to, you know, to, to command certain voters to come out to vote and so on. Um, and I think that's what played in their decision to come in 1997. And then, of course, the Arab uprising happened in 2011 with the whole, uh, what was called the February 20th movement, uh, protest movement, which actually brought to a lot of people in the streets, in major streets in Morocco in 2011, early 2012. And then, of course, they were met, the PJD was met with another decision, right? Should they uh, go into the streets and uh, protest and join the February 20 movement? But they decided not to. They decided to stick to the institutional track, right? Because I think by that time, they were very confident that they could come to nominal control of the government had there been any kind of elections and so on, right? And that would happen, of course, in 2012, and that they would win a nominal uh, plurality of the seats. Nobody in Morocco can ever win the majority of the seats. I mean, we have to be clear about that. The way the, the, the system, electoral speaking, is done and so on, no one party can win the majority, absolute majority and have that, that mandate, right, that you could command in terms of uh, electoral uh, victory. Um, so they, they, they stayed on the sidelines. They, I think they rode that wave of uh, the popular dissent, the angst in the street and so on. But I think at the same time, the regime saw it as an opportunity to bring about an opposition, quote unquote, labeled opposition party, not a loyalist palace party that Morocco has seen throughout the years since the post-independence era, to try to manage right, to manage those protests, to manage the angst in the street, to, to manage, of course, and, and you know more than anyone, I think, about the Arab uprisings, what was going on in 2012 in all over the Arab world, I would say, right, to manage, of course, what could have happened, of course, in, 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 uh, in, in Algeria, in Tunisia, in Egypt, and so on. So I think the regime saw that an opportunity to try to placate that, 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 that movement, of course, with uh, passing this kind of blue ribbon constitutional changes that passed almost unanimously and so on, that changed a little bit of not the substance, but the style of the delivery of power and governance in Morocco. And the PJD found itself in control, nominally, of course, of the, with other parties, uh, with of the government in 2012. So and then, that so what happens then when they get into government? Because people always wonder about Islamists. How are they going to govern? Are they going to be kind of focused on social and cultural issues? They're going to focus on the economy and be rational politicians. What was your reading of what the PJD did after it mm -hmm. took office? 
And I think the latter, what you stated, because they tried to focus largely on socioeconomic reforms. They tried to look at the uh, social spending, of course, of certain social services in, in Morocco, like uh, the retirement plans, of course, for public employees, right? Um, the problem with those decisions that those decisions are not always single-handedly done by the government, whoever in the government, whether it's the Islamist or others. Those are decisions that have to be approved by the palace, the shadow, what I call the shadow government in the palace, right? So no one important decision, economic decision, definitely not foreign policy or a decision that is of uh, national security and so on. Those are within the prerogative of the monarchy and the palace, uh, you know, advisors, right? So, but they tried to do certain things. They removed certain, or they tried to lift certain subsidies on, let's say, uh, you know, gasoline, oil, and so on. But those are also sectors that are controlled by the by the regime. Right. So uh, I think my, my hunch was that, that the regime wanted to kind of open up certain uh, areas of socioeconomic reforms and give them uh, to the Islamists to kind of feel that they are empowered to effect certain reforms. But if they don't work, then those that are going to get the blame, of course, as the PJD government and not the regime. This idea, this duality between regime and state in Morocco, that the regime is insulated, the monarchy, right, of any kind of reproach or criticism. And it kind of managed to work because since 2012, they have not had a good luck at governance. I don't think they were equipped to read beyond, of course, the day-to-day -day affairs of the government to see how they could be used as pawns in the hands of the regime, to be honest. And, um, and of course, by 2016, they found themselves also in internal discussions, right? Well, should be the trajectory of the, of, the, of the party itself, especially after they won the elections again, plurality of the seats, of course, again in 2016. And then they had the task of building or uh, forming a government, a coalition government. This time, though, no party wanted to join them to get the, that seats, the majority of the seats necessary to form the government. So, and this was, uh, some people argue that it was coming from the top, that the loyalist parties that were part of the coalition government in 2012, 2016, uh, were given maybe specific indications or whatever, indicate, or even uh, direct orders not to join the party at that time to what was called in Morocco as blocage, blocking, right? The political blockage of 2016 that was directed not at the party, but at Ben Kiran himself. Abdelilah Ben Kiran, uh, by 2016, I think, uh, became more of a, and I wrote about this, of course, for the monkey cage as well, right? That he, I think he became more populist, more popular with the, Amer with the Moroccan people. Uh, he started talking, walking this tightrope between criticizing the government and even the monarchy a little bit, what he called the authoritarian nature of the government itself, what he called tahakum and whatnot. Uh, he started, of course, feeling that he's much more uh, probably popular than probably he was. And I think that sent a, a wrong message, of course, because the, now the regime started thinking that there can be only one actor that is that popular, that is that important in this kind of political scene in, in Morocco. And I think that's what the blocage was created so that they force Ben Kiran not to uh, form the government. And according to the constitution of Morocco, if he can't do that, the monarchy has the right to basically ask somebody else from that party, right, to uh, uh, to form the government or have new elections. Of course, the PJD, and then I wrote that as well, I think also I mentioned it in Monkey Cage uh, article as well, is that that's where I think uh, the PJD was faced with a second strategic and I think uh, important, uh, even existentialist now given 2021 elections, existentialist decision, which is, should we stay in the government or should we just say, you know what, we're going back to the opposition. 
nobody wants to join our leader now so we should just go back to the opposition and i actually advised when i talked to some people from bjd i said you probably be behooved if you actually leave and go to the opposition they didn't take that of course they didn't take my my advice on that right not that it was not important to them and then he uh, they decided you know what we're going to have a change in the in the government comes Uthmani, who's a prime minister of course since 2016 but he's not been kiran he's not charismatic is not a popular leader some people see him as a weak weak uh, prime minister in in, in morocco uh, he was derided in social media and so on and so forth as being um, really not effective as a prime minister and so on and so forth and then more so the pjd was actually forced in a sense to uh, uh remove ibn kiran right because mikan felt slighted i think and he stepped down as the secretary general the president of the party itself and i think that was an indication that the party was weakened from within uh, and i think the regime uh, first of all wanted to manage the political system in 2011 and also by 2016 until 2021 also wanted to weaken this pjd because it was the, arguably the, the 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 strongest political party in terms of mobilization capabilities and that's what happened in 2021 right those those areas of weakness and i said it kind of like the pjd was killed and kind of died gradually by thousand cuts in a sense in 2012 2016 and finally of course in 20 uh, in 21 to the point that right now i mean there's tremendous dissatisfaction and disappointment with the pjd which is the same thing of course that happened in the history of morocco anytime there is uh, there are periods of economic crises political crises and whatnot parties from the coalition from the opposition will brought to to govern to showcase and of course they won't give uh, they won't be given absolute authority to 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 govern with any mandate and they it will showcase of course their shortcomings to the moroccan people now of course i mean not a lot of moroccan people even buy into the system and uh, of elections and vote i mean even in the last elections you have a little barely over the majority so you have almost 50% of the population that is of the voters of course that stay at home but it doesn't matter according to the new electoral rules right i mean they still count in all those that are registered and of course there's all kinds of shenanigans of course of how people were registered the vote the votes that are being bought i know it actually firsthand when i talk to people that were approached people i know firsthand that were that got 20 30 dollars of course to vote for a party or the other and so on and so forth so the the pjd of course was a victim of its own miscalculations strategic of course decisions that were uh, i think erroneous and of course because of uh, let's face it in morocco still the regime reigns supreme and they are the regime now is very confident because we are far removed from the arab uprising of course aftermath very confident to the point that they are bringing back now recycling in a coalition that is led by palace parties right the rni and so on and so forth right so that's what in is the story of the pjd of course in a, a short period of time well great thanks mohammed for joining us incredibly interesting as it always is thank, thank you. you thank you so much thank you